podcast one production. Las Vegas. At the start of each year, a quarter million people descend on Sin City to have a play with the latest gadgets. CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, is one of the largest trade fairs in the world. But did you know it's also one of the most important automotive shows? If you want to know what a car is becoming, this is the place to be. Hi. This is Mark Pesci, and in this second episode of The Next Billion Gadgets, I'm joined by automotive expert Sally Dominguez. G'day, Mark. Sally's touring the show floor at CES, looking at cars that have become the ultimate gadgets, and how that's transforming our experiences, both passengers and drivers. Now, Sally, I guess the first thing to take a look at is who's here at this show in terms of automakers? It's pretty much everyone, right? It's not everyone, Mark, but it's the real players. So we're missing Volkswagen. Okay. Uh, however, we have the big three. We have Audi, Mercedes and BMW in, in a type of way representing. And what's really relevant about that is while those big manufacturers are ramping up their presence at CES, they are withdrawing from the Detroit Auto Show, which has always been the marker for the launch of automobile innovation. And that's actually happening just next week. So it's the week after CES. And generally what you'd see is that all of these big brands would launch all of their big cars in Detroit. And that's not happening this year. What is that telling us? Well, the fact that you've got those players, Audi, BMW and Mercedes, not representing at Detroit is massive. I mean, look, there's a lot of people left and there's a lot of up and comings, especially in the electrical vehicle startup area that are going to sort of try and replace them, but it's not the same. These are huge players choosing to opt out of traditional auto launches and look for something else. And it seems like they're looking for what CES has. Well, what is it that CES has? Well, I think what we're seeing is this um, final coming together of the idea of the computer chip, gaming, virtual reality, artificial intelligence is all now manifesting into the car. And the car is the hub where all of this stuff is assembling. And one of the things that's really interesting is on the show floor, one of the largest computer game companies, NVIDIA, which makes the graphics chips that are in basically every game or PC in the world, they have a booth here, but their booth is located over with the auto manufacturers, not over with the gaming manufacturers. And that's telling us that, in fact, those chips are now being used more by car makers to help those cars be smart than they are being used by gamers to help shoot aliens. That's right. And and what is coming with Uh, this idea of all the computer in the car becoming the essence of the car. So instead of the drivability, instead of the performance, we have computation, the abilities of AI and everything else to drive a car. What we're also seeing now are people talking about cars as a service. This is brand new territory. So what does that mean when you talk about car as a service? Well, we've always talked about cars as uh, something for the individual, something for the driver, something that's performance-based and something with ownership involved. Generally, we have fleets, but really ownership. Now we have companies like Toyota and Hyundai talking about how we'll no longer own cars, how actually we can use these cars to enable people who have never been drivers, blind people, physically impaired people, the mega elderly, the youth, the young, 
um, to now be a part of that driving economy because we're going to have driverless cars and assisted cars. You know, we talked quite a bit about driverless cars on the next billion seconds, and, and there are different opinions about how soon we will have driverless cars. I guess we're going to leave that to one side. But even so, we're starting to see how even just the idea of the driverless car is starting to shape the way the car makers are now starting to think about their cars, transport as a service, but also in terms of some of the new vehicles that we're seeing introduced. And you and I went to a vehicle introduction yesterday. I actually think um, what we've seen at CES is several paradigm shifts in the way we view and interact with cars. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're right. The first thing that we went to was a bit of an eye-opener. A new electric car startup, Byton, has shown at the show twice, but this is the first time they've shown a car ready for production at the end of this year. Byton did not mention top speed. They didn't even mention range. All they talked about basically, apart from the fact that the thing was really beautiful, was a 40-inch screen, a bunch of connectivity stuff and technical trickery. So in other words, the fact that the dashboard is now this just incredibly long, incredibly high-definition display, sort of your ultimate Netflix experience, although you really are kind of supposed to use it to drive. Incredibly elegant console, but pretty dysfunctional super distracting. And yet this is the way they're going to sell that car. Because people are looking for that kind of experience. Now they're not thinking about it. And when you talk about this, any car introduction, and you've been to many car launches, they always lead by they talking about speed, they talk about performance, the, the RPMs, the horsepower, all of these metrics that we've always used to judge the worth of a car. And all of a sudden we've just abandoned them. Every car launch I've been to at CES, has talked predominantly about connectivity, about how that company is going to sell membership, about different ways apart from ownership that that company is going to move forward. And nobody at any of the launches I was at talked about range for an electric vehicle, talked about performance at all. So you actually had a conversation with the chief designer at Byton about those decisions that they made in their car. Benoit Jacob is a design veteran. He's worked in the car industry for around 28 years and they brought this thing to fruition in 28 months. Is that fast? It's incredibly fast. It's at least twice as fast as an average car, but way faster. Because it takes five to six years to basically design a car and then get a car to market. That's right. And they're saying that the prototype that you and I saw will be on the road in China and then in Europe and the USA end of 2019, beginning of 2020. And they're saying it is absolutely safe and ready to go. Although you and I suspect there are some sagging flaws in the safety aspects of this car. Benoit, what's your background in car design? Uh, My background is, uh, I think, started something like 25 years ago. I'm graduated from Arts and the College of Design, actually, which is uh, based in Pasadena. Yeah, I mean, that's truly an exciting job, I must say. I've been through different companies and I did join Python to take the position of Vice President of Design uh, now for about two and a half years ago. And now I understand that the car that we saw launched on Sunday is going to be available at the end of 2019. Is that right? Have I got the right car? Our target is to bring the cars on the market by the end of this year. Incredible. And um, we also heard that it only took you 28 months to develop the car. 
Yeah, that was very, very quick. Huh? Normally, <laughs> like uh, I typically say, like in the design team, a designer will experience in one year what you would normally experience in three years in, a in another design studio. That has been so quick, man. Uh, just unbelievable. But we were able to mature though, like the, the whole thing uh, within that little short of time because we are quite agile when it comes to decision making, for example. Yeah, sometimes it helps to be smaller, I think, and more in charge. Um, what, I, what I was really impressed with, with the car that we saw, was really in terms of interior resolution, it's more res resolved than, say, the Tesla, which has been around a while. In terms of your dash lines, particularly the console, is absolutely beautiful. So did you do the exterior and the interior simultaneously? Yes, typically uh, in the car design process, both uh, are starting at the very same moment. Uh, typically, interior design is a little bit delayed all, uh, from exterior. Uh, here we did it the opposite way. We started inside out in a way because we really uh, drive the design philosophy about like uh, many other, like the experience. And you have to start around the people. You have to start uh, around how they're going to think or live, you know, like while on the move. And this is why we kind of started the interior first so which is quite new and then after like wrapped it into a possibly beautiful uh, dress with the exterior design. Yeah, and one of the enchanting things I think about this interior that had everybody talking at the show was that huge 40-inch wide screen that is horizontal, not vertical. It's a, it's a new thing to put the screen right across below the windscreen, I think. Uh, I would say like these ideas of large screens are not typically new. We saw that uh, many times in, in uh, visionary show cars from different uh, brands. Uh, that's probably a pretty whole dream or whole idea. Uh, what is really new is that we do it for real and we bring that into production. And we believe it is necessary to do so because uh, not only will we deliver digital content in a better manner, uh, like the screen is actually split in three different areas where we can uh, uh, bring uh, different sort of content, uh, be it entertainment, navigation, uh, vehicle information, but it's also uh, made in such a way that we will be able to update this car much quicker and much more often than the whole hardware. Uh, like this is a car which is also 50% hardware, 50% software. Uh, this is now what is the car of tomorrow. And in a way, that big screen is for us a platform where we will be able to uh, probably even create some use case that we don't even know as of today. And this is what makes like the whole thing very exciting. In terms of a car that's going to be actually on the market, one thing that a lot of people were talking about at the reveal was that the light from that screen and then the light coming in in daytime through the windshield is pretty similar. So how have you guys tested to ensure that the driver is not totally distracted by that massive screen? Uh, first of all, this is a screen, so we can control anything that happens uh, on that screen down to the last pixel, huh? be it the intensity, the light, the color, uh, all these sort of parameters. Uh, moreover, uh, we have been, of course, doing some testing, uh, first of all, virtually, uh, like we have like uh, within a design team, for example, a very high capacity in terms of uh, virtual reality, via visualization. So we were able to uh, test not only during daytime, but at nine, this first virtually, uh, until we were able also to implement physically into test jig and bugs uh, and uh, get uh, different kind of people uh, from our company uh, testing it and see whether like it's uh, working or not. And I can tell you this is working quite well and it's additionally uh, street legal. Um, another innovation you had was that you had the screen in the middle of the steering wheel and it remains fixed while the steering wheel turns. And then I noticed that you've then positioned the airbag below that. 
So in chance, am I right? Oh God, uh, we lost so much hair doing that thing. Yes. Uh, it's a beautiful <laughs> piece of engineering, I must say, uh, because you have, of course, to have like a gearbox into the, the whole system in such a way that the screen uh, remains at the same position. You don't want it to see rotating. Uh, it is at the very end a beautiful piece of engineering. It's very light, it's very compact. And uh, the finality is also like highly intuitive because now you have the possibility to interact with your car uh, and also text or do a couple of like duties, you know, like uh, right under your hands, huh? right under your fingertips. Um, and what we promised into the show car is what we deliver exactly into the production car because as you saw during the press conference, we revealed the production interior picture. Uh, it is based actually on the geometrical data properties that we have now for the production car. It's no longer show business. And uh, we believe like this is really like our vision of what could be a smart uh, device on wheels. And fine, I got one more safety question. I'm not normally fixated on safety, but the fact that that thing looks like that and can come to market that quickly has me asking all these questions because I'm fascinated. Um, so you've got fully retracting door tabs, not really handles, right? Tabs. Yes. Um, the rear door in particular uh, is a tiny little tab and it, and it goes totally flush when the door is closed. So if I had a crash and the car uh, energy system was disabled, can somebody get me out? I mean, uh, the, the car, uh, the m is designed uh, to fulfill first all the safety standards worldwide, not only China, but also US and of course Europe. And uh, it's all uh, driven by, let's say, hardest case, uh, so to say. Uh, when it comes uh, to the safety uh, aspects, of course, the in all interior has the normal airbags, all these sort of things. And coming back to your question regarding uh, door handles, uh, we will have like flush door handles, uh, which are designed, of course, to retract or extract uh, in an emergency situation. Uh, like the fireman must be able to put a hook or grab something and hopefully uh, pull you away. But we hope that this, this will not happen. The car is designed also to be highly clever and smart and normally prevent these bad things to happen. Yeah, I mean, this is the whole premise, right, of um, driver assist and ending up as autonomous driving as we won't have the crashes, which is fantastic. Well, it is the most beautiful looking car. I really applaud you on the design. Thank you, Benoit. Thank you so much. That's really interesting because, you know, you're starting to touch on this idea of style versus Substance, And of course, you went to another event, which was this big Toyota launch. And Toyota is the largest manufacturer of cars in the world. How did that play against what we saw from Byton? Byton versus Toyota P4 is indeed interesting. The Byton is a beautiful and elegant looking car. The lines are exquisite. Toyota generally on its usual fleet style cars, they're fine, they're refined, but they're not beautiful. Now, the P4 that Toyota presented is a pretty average-looking car and it appears to have a sort of a full luggage-holding thing on the top, but what that extra top component is holding is incredible in terms of its technical ability. And so this is the car that's pioneering their Guardian and their chauffeur new assisted driver and autonomous driving technologies. Okay, so, so you say Guardian and chauffeur. So what are these two things? These are new products basically that, that they're, uh, Toyota is going to be offering. Right, so, so whereas... Byton says, this car is fantastic, we're totally connected, you'll drive it for now and later on, it'll drive itself. Very big picture. 
Toyota, as usual, very specific in what it's working on, very detailed in its technical backup. So Guardian is what they see as a driver-assisted package using machine learning that will help guide us human drivers um, through a less fatality-filled driving experience for the next 15 years. So Guardian, it's going to help us be a better driver. Yep. Guardian is going to make us be a miles better driver. Okay. Um, but at the heart, we're still holding the wheel. Right. Guardian is going to assist us along the way. Great name. And this is, you know, there are different names for this. You call artificial intelligence when the car is driving itself. When the car is helping you drive, then you call it intelligence augmentation, right? You turn it around. So this is that idea that a smart car doesn't have to drive itself. All it has to do, at least at the first level, is just help us be better drivers. That's be exactly more road it. aware, more vehicle aware. It's exactly what it's there to do. It's going to learn from our behavior. It's going to learn what we're not good at. And it's going to assist us and remind us and help us be better. Okay. Which is terrific. It's yes. a guardian. Yeah. All right. Now, chauffeur is what they're working toward. Chauffeur four and five are various levels of indeed autonomous driving. Um, and then Toyota are the first to admit the chauffeur has a long way to go. But um, of course, with their incredible thorough approach, they're already onto it. And the P4 is their car, which is enabling them to test and run all this technology on their new track. Did they give you a time frame for when Toyota expects? start to integrate Guardian into a car versus integrating chauffeur into a car? As I understand it, Guardian is basically coming, is, okay. is ready to go almost. Right. You know, but Guardian will be constantly updating. Yeah. Chauffeur, they're the first to admit you can't tell. There are, they, we need regulations. We need, as we've also spoken about at CES, um, a lot of groups, Intel, other groups, PAVE is another industry group, all trying to work on what regulations do we need to guide this concept of a driverless car. And we'll come to this in another series, but we had a very interesting conversation with the fellow from Intel. So Intel makes the brains of most of the computers in the world that really touched on what Guardian is. So Guardian is a set of programs inside the car that's helping you be a better driver. It's also like a lot of these self-driving cars are going to have something similar in them because the cars will be driving themselves, but then there's going to be a Guardian over them going, you don't want to make that turn. You don't want to do that in traffic. And so it's almost as though there's going to be a backseat driver for our autonomous vehicles. And this is what I find fascinating because we all know how annoying a backseat driver can be. So here is the challenge to all of them is how are you going to make that backseat driver tolerable? And, you know, in talking to Jack this morning, what I thought was really interesting was, you know, how will you do the essentially human element of that? How do you do a cultural overlay? If I'm driving in a car, essentially I'm, I'm passengering in a car and the car is driving itself, say, and we're looking at an animal on the road, which animals are we called to run over and which animals are absolutely taboo? If it's a cane toad and I'm an Australian, perhaps I'm cool with the car running it over. If it's a koala or an echidna or even a magpie that mates for life, do I want to run it over? Hell no. But another culture might go, come on, man, it's a bird. No, it's a bear. You know, oh, it's a spiky creature. And so I think what's so interesting is that cultural overlay and how are these global companies going to deal with that? Because you have a global company dealing with a lot of different markets with a lot of behaviors. And what we're now starting to get into is if we start putting our behaviors into cars, and it's not, in fact, your behavior or my behavior, but the behavior of someone in Germany, 
who's made the decision because it's in the software, then, then in fact, they are making a decision that once it's made and once the echidna is run over. This is the challenge. We will hate that backseat driver. And so at a time when everybody is talking about we need to come together and be global on this approach, well, no, we also need to accept that we're all humans and we're extremely different on our accept- acceptance rate of what we want to hit on the road, you know. It's a fascinating hurdle that they have. Okay, so we also now, in terms of this idea of sameness and difference, you saw a lot of these autonomous vehicle boxes. You called them boxes. Like they all basically look like they're just boxes on wheels. They're all carved out of the same piece of plastic or fiberglass or whatever. And there's this image that the next generation of autonomous vehicles are just going to be ugly and boring and entirely utilitarian. Mr. Blobby. They're just Mr. Blobby. (laughs) (laughs) Or are they? (laughs) But then you also saw an amazing Australian company that's actually taking a completely counterattack to this. I was so happy to find this company and then to find that they're an Australian startup made me extremely warm and fuzzy because I was walking through essentially 10 million different versions of LiDAR, 10 million different versions of connectivity. LiDAR is the sensor technology that an autonomous vehicle uses to map the world around. It. Okay. Right. So, so of course it's a tech show. Of course they're showing all of that. But I was going slightly pear shaped, just trying to take it all in. And then hark in front of me, I see this beautifully resolved modular robotic chassis with the, a number of different pods that sat attached on top within you know six to ten minutes and turned this thing into a number of different service vehicles. And the company was AEV Robotics. And I got to talk to the designer as well as the communications guy about how, just how good this concept really is. Tom Hamilton was his name, who explained how the AEV skateboard chassis with the detachable pods worked and how it was different to other vehicles in the space. So this is a completely new uh, idea for transport. Um, And it's not a car, it's a system. So as you said, the robotic base, functional pods on top. So if you think of it like a mobile phone, mobile phone, you have hardware, and then you add your applications on top. And we're offering that to brands for on-demand transport. So what we're we're creating is a city that uh, has on-demand low-speed transport at 40 kilometres an hour. So how safe is this vehicle? Yeah, it's a really good question. The first thing that we do is we've reduced the speed. So 40 kilometres an hour. So in Australia, for example, um, you'd see the Towards Zero campaign, and that's because the physics of 40 reduce a wide range of issues. Our focus is actually to focus on pedestrian safety because while phase one is having a people mover and a person driving it, as we move towards a fully autonomous network, uh, pedestrian safety is going to be increasingly important. So reducing the speed on that note as well um, and having it autonomous sensors everywhere um, means that we're, we're hoping to reduce um, a range of pedestrian deaths and injuries. So when can we expect to see these vehicles buzzing around our streets? Yeah, so for 2019, we're selling the developer platform and we're working with brands to expand their capabilities. On the roads, I don't know, we've driven this on the streets of Melbourne. Uh, last month I was in Tokyo, we had it on the streets of Tokyo doing testing. Uh, however... To have it on commercial production is going to, there'll be a range of factors, but I think realistically, three to four years. Okay, so we actually now start to have this future where the car isn't one thing, 
it's one thing for each person who needs a car for the thing that it's doing. So how do we now start to think about the car? Is the car going to be an experience for the driver, which is now going to have the guardian looking over its shoulder? Is it the experience for the passenger who's either going to be sitting in a boring box or perhaps in something that's much more custom fit to what they need? You and I sat through a really bad virtual reality presentation the other <laughs> night of a car that would configure itself based on whether it was being used to have a meeting in or whether you were catching some sleep in it or whatever. What do we see in this relationship between the passenger and the driver and all of the different needs now that we're seeing the car not just as something that gets you from point A to point B, but something you're using while you're getting from point A to point B? There's so much happening inside the cockpit now. I mean, you know, I think we can all admit that whether it's a guardian or whether it's a chauffeur, we're not actually doing that much driving. And there's a huge focus this year on wellness inside the cabin. So wellness and also distraction and entertainment. So so there is, you know, the bad VR that we saw was um, merely a reconfiguration of seats. There's a lot of, you can take a seat out, you can turn it into a table or a baby thing or, you know, there's, a, there's always been that. People always like to fiddle around with that. But I think... Um, the experience of being inside the car is also something everybody is focusing on. For instance, Audi has a little collaboration with Disney where they've come up with um, VR computer game for the backseat backseat drivers, the backseat passengers. <laughs> to keep the, um, keep the backseat drivers which, quiet. <laughs> which is um, synced with the movement of the car real time. So as the car turns a corner, you're going to feel that in the game. So you're actually going to get, what do we call that, 4D? Yeah, yeah. Well, you're, you're, yeah, you're going to get the, the perception sense because your inner air is going to be going, oh, you're moving and the game's going to move at the same time. But I actually think we can go way deeper than that on the car. And when I was talking to Tom over at AEV Robotics, he was talking about how in Iran people find that they're able to do things in the car where nobody's looking, do things in the car um, where basically the car becomes a safe space to do things where, where, where basically no one can see what you're doing. And I think this future of a driverless car is actually providing us with a space with no supervision. So you can totally imagine. So you can imagine like, teenagers going off to neck inside the car like, as they always that, have. I'm, I'm thinking there'll be, if you've got autonomous and their service vehicles, there'll be sex cars. There'll be Dutch oven cars where everyone goes off to smoke together and it'll probably release marijuana through the vents. I mean, I live in California. What can I say? It's going to happen. I might design it just because someone has to. I don't want it, but I'm going to design it. But, you know, I think there'll be, you know, you could have drug dealing cars. Here is a here is a whole flip side. Yes, service industry, but as we know, service comes in all forms. And I think that this whole idea of the unsupervised pod is uh, open frontier. We're talking to Sally Domingues about the amazing cars at this year's Consumer Electronics Show. You're listening to The Next Being Gadgets, and we will be right back. And we're back on the next billion gadgets coming to you from CES 2019 in Las Vegas. And we're here with automobile expert Sally Deminks. So, Sally, you went to another car launch from Hyundai. And this was truly a launch. <laughs> it was a bit of fun. Now, um, Many of the companies are talking about cars as a positive contributor to society. Here's another shift where we're no longer saying cars are going to be a suck on energy and a suck on environment, but 
as well as transporting people, what else can they do? And Hyundai showed just what else they could do by proposing, you know, what could happen if your car were able to help out in a natural disaster? And then showed us a video of the Hyundai Elevate, which is basically a very rugged little chunky SUV, egg-shaped thing, which during that natural disaster, earthquakes say, pops up on chunky little legs and starts walking around with you in it to see how it can help. It, legs? I mean... I mean, wh- it's a bit of Star Wars, isn't it? It's like a walker. It's like an... Yeah, like an Akak, exactly. It's just... it's 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 so, so, in other words, the wheels stay down there and then the car just sort of stilts up on them, but then these... These. Then the wheels have little, little, um, I guess, cover things come over them to stabilise them. And they actually had a scale robot to demonstrate that this wasn't just sci-fi. This is something possible. And of course, Mark, we know it is possible because the Boston Dynamics Alpha Dog has been in development 10 years. DARPA has it with the US military and it basically gets up and walks along and carries people's stuff and it doesn't have a head. Right. And this is, you know, people see this device, if you've seen YouTube videos, and there have been many YouTube videos of these Boston Dynamics robots, that there's a sort of creepiness because it's eerily familiar and yet eerily alien at the same time. And you're watching then this vehicle that Hyundai has designed do exactly the same thing. That's right. And knowing that 10 years ago, we would have said, oh, ha, ha, Star Wars. But no, we know that the Hyundai Elevate, even though it was an animation and a scale robot, in fact, is possible. It's possible. So this could then be what the future of, say, an SES vehicle looks like. So it gets to someone who's been in a flood or who's been in a fire and can crawl over debris and actually sort of make its way to someone in need so that this is kind of what an ambulance ends up looking like. When you can't bring anything else in, you bring in the elevator. That's right. So are we a robot or are we a car? It's pretty interesting. You know, and, and they even pose the scenario, you're driving to the snow, you slide off the road. Well, now you can activate your legs and dig yourself out and then pop yourself back on the road and keep on driving. I mean, you know, it's not impossible. How exciting is that? It's so cool. It's, you know, and, and there's clearly going to be some use cases where they absolutely will need that feature. Like not all of them, probably not even most of them, but some of them. And you could see places where where like ski cats get used mm-hmm. or certain kinds of vehicles that have to work in very dangerous terrain. Right? Yeah, I mean, of course, we're always trying to wait, take weight out of vehicles to make them more fuel efficient. So no, we don't want a pair of legs dangling around or in fact, set of legs. It's not even a pair, you know, just for that little emergency that may happen. But as you say, purpose-built vehicles that are able to add this extra dimension to their movement and their practicality. It's, it's pretty incredible. Now, but then that brings up that there's a, another, and I think probably simpler, but yet far more useful way to think about this. And you saw something from Honda. I saw it as well, but you saw it. And it just blew me away because it's both really simple and really clever. Yeah. It's one of those things, like so many good ideas, that seems really obvious. And yet here it is seemingly for the first time. Um, and Honda, it's, they're calling it the autonomous work vehicle. And they've basically taken an all-terrain vehicle chassis that they've had that works really, really well for a long time. And they're not electrifying it. Unlike so many um, autonomous vehicles, it's running on petrol in this instance. Um, but what they've got is a little workhorse. So again, no head. It's just a flat 
platform with very, very rugged all-terrain wheels and the capability to go over really, really rough terrain. And we saw it um, in action in this little video helping firefighters. And it was fascinating, right? Because it's got its GPS tracking, it's got these other abilities, so it has the follow ability so that once they've taken it on a track carrying all the heavy equipment, say to a fire or another emergency site, the little darling can just trail back and forth following its own path, bringing you more stuff, taking out injured people, whatever it's got to do. Right, so it's this idea then that there's enough smarts in it to make it really useful without so many smarts that you kind of have to worry about it doing too many things. It's that sweet spot in that you have something that's a helper and that this is something that, again, it seems really obvious. It's like, oh, wait, yes, you could use it, but you could also use it on a construction site or you could use it in the backyard if you scaled it down a little bit. They were clearly talking about using it on the farm as well. So mm. the more and more and more use cases for something like this that's smart enough to help out without so smart that you don't have to worry about it. Yeah, I absolutely loved it. It's so elegant and simple and rugged. It's like man's best friend, you know, part two which is it can trail you along, it can carry all the heavy stuff for you. It's like your little personal Sherpa. Right, um, exactly. And I thought it was terrific, yeah. And and already already in action. So already happening, already working. So this is a Honda's autonomous work vehicle. It's designed to just be a useful tool. It could be for any different industry or business. We envision, you know, hundreds of possible uses uh, all over the world. And the, the unique thing about this vehicle is it's based on Honda's ATVs, which are super rugged, super capable, has four-wheel drive, knobby tires, low center of gravity. It can go places that many off-road vehicles just can't go. It's very small, maneuverable, and get into tight, tight areas. So we see these as doing chores in an outdoor environment, in a rugged environment, difficult environment. Uh, it can keep people safe by doing dangerous tasks. It can do repetitive tasks, mundane tasks. So, for example, driving back and forth from the from the fields to the processing facility on a farm right. with the harvest. Right. Then that, that person can now be freed up to do other tasks that add more value. So it can free up workers. It can make people's lives easier by doing dangerous tasks. The firefighting team last year, we showed the concept. The firefighting team con- contacted us after last year. The Colorado Department of Public Safety firefighting team has a uh, like an advanced planning group within their team, right. and they're looking at new technologies. And they contacted us and say, "Hey, we want this thing. We want to be involved." And we told them, "Well, it's just a prototype." And they said, "Well, we want to help with the testing. We want to use this thing. We want to be the first users of this vehicle." So they're. Their guys will go out, and gals will go out when there's a fire, and they have to carry 50, 60 pounds of gear, so 20, 30 kilos of gear. And by the time they get to the fire, you know, oftentimes they're exhausted, they're sweaty, and so they want to use this vehicle to load in all their gear, and in addition to some water, what actually really helps them when they're, when they're out in these remote areas to have some water. So the vehicle can carry, you know, hundreds of gallons of waters or hundreds of liters of water, <clears throat> and the vehicle has a follow me function through its autonomous capabilities so that they can press a button on it to follow me and it will just stay, you know, a few meters behind them and just follow them up, up the hill. Normally how it works is they'll drive up a fire road as close as they can get to the fire. They'll get out of the truck, load up all their gear, and they'll just start walking. And usually there are still some kind of fire access roads, but if they have to go off the path, you know, this thing can go over logs, it can go over rocks, it can go through mud and water. And so that's kind of one of the really unique use cases. And then we've also partnered with 
uh, one of the biggest agriculture universities in California. And they contacted us and they wanted to be involved in kind of the development process and the use for this. And they initially see it being used again to transport the harvest initially, but as the technology evolves, they see it being used to uh, actually do the harvest. So you can create robotic arms on top of the vehicle and it could actually pick fruits and vegetables depending on the crop type. And as the technology evolves, one of the things that's going on in agriculture right now is what they call precision, precision agriculture. So not just blanket spraying pesticides or fertilizer, but really sensing the crop and then spraying it as needed. Yeah, absolutely. No, I've, I've certainly seen the Center for Field Robotics at Sydney University has a very strong program in this where they have things and they use a smartphone to take a picture of the of the plant, figure out whether it's well or not, and or if it's a weed, and then just spray that plant with an herbicide if it's a weed. Okay, so this is a concept. When do we think we're going to start to see things like this in more broad use? Well, that's one of the reasons we're at CES is it's still a prototype. And one of the reasons we're here is we're looking for partners. We're looking for business partners that have a use for this. Doesn't matter big or small. We're looking for technology partners that can help us take the autonomy to the next level, be more accurate, go in environments that are more challenging. We're looking for partners that might have attachments to put on the front, back, or the rear of this thing. You know, niche niche industries or anything that might have a real strong use for this. So we're still in a kind of a learning phase as far as who's going to use it and how it's going to work. And that's, again, one of the reasons why we're here. Well, as you know from our time back on The New Inventors, a working prototype says a lot. You know, you can make a snazzy video, but in fact, if you can show a working prototype, that's a whole different bag of fish. And in this case, they've not only got a working prototype, but they've been beta testing this thing in a range of conditions from the firefighting concept to farming and to some urban stuff. So I think um, I think it's well on the way. You know, Honda has had a long history making all sorts of industrial engines and things with, you know, the fact that they make this ATVs is not a big deal for them because they make ATVs and they've been making ATVs for years. So are we starting to now see that the ideas of what a car maker is, is now becoming this much more flexible thing that a car maker is a set of skills that's not really just about moving people from point A to point B, but it's about providing mobility in any situation for anything that needs it. This is one of those paradigm shifts, I believe, because we are redefining what what is a car versus what is even transport. We're seeing um, a lot of development in personal transportation and that final point-to-point type thing, scooters, small wheelchairs, little hovercraft, like all these different type, you know, vertical liftoff aircraft are now talking about one and two people things. So I think that we're looking at, 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 what cars are in a completely different way. And I think the manufacturers are running scared too because they don't have the answer. I mean, you've got um, Hyundai and Toyota talking about, oh, we'll have subscription services because people won't own cars. Well, they don't, that's not their business. And then you've got other people, Audi's now made an electric sort of hovercraft surfboard thing. Well, that's not what they do. They're not watercraft people. And then Honda is chugging along doing all its industrial stuff. Honda's probably best placed to whip up a little personal transportation device and whip up a super rugged little man's best friend helper thing for out on a bushfire, you know? And you also then have at the same time a Harley Davidson has announced an electric bike, which you almost, I, I'm sure there are Harley fans who are screaming heresy about this because there's so much of the Harley, it's tied up in the deep-throated roar 
of a petrol engine. And, you know, this has been such a drama because you have, I mean, Renault classically a couple of years ago, the Clio had a little button where you could sound like a 1927 race car or you could sound like a spaceship or you could, because in fact the actual engine was too small to have that grunt. Now, how on earth can you accept as a Harley owner a recording of a sound? So what is it? This starts to ask some basic questions about, you know, is this just in the same way that we used to accept noise when we played an album because there would be dirt on the needle? And we don't anymore because all the recordings are digital, even though kids are going back to vinyl. Is the idea of the noise of a petrol engine, which signified the power behind that engine, is that now just sort of this weird antique and we're just hearing the final strains of it? Well, again, it's back to humanity and the human condition here. I mean, can a throb be supplanted by a buzz or a whir? I mean, they're two very, very different sensations. And I think we have sort of throbbing engines have always been this sort of sexy power performance. You're the driver. You're owning the machine. Now, what are we? I mean, we're the passenger. Are we buzzing along? Are we buzzing? I don't know what we're doing. It's, it's almost like we need a new sense because the, the sound will never be the same. So perhaps it's this incredible flushing speed or perhaps it's whatever the entertainment system is in the back. Or perhaps it's whatever people are doing when they can't be observed inside this very tightly controlled space, which may be one of the most private spaces that we have in the future. Sally, it has been amazing talking to you about all of the innovations that we're seeing at the Consumer Electronics Show this year and what it's telling us about what's happening to the next billion cars. Because we can now see the beginning of an arc into the fact that the car is transforming, the car makers know it's transforming, the car driver and car passenger are feeling it transform, but we, none of us know where it's headed. Nobody knows what's next. On the next episode of The Next Billion Gadgets, we'll be joined by virtual reality pioneer Tony Parisi, as we seek out some of the wilder and weirder gadgets available only here at the Consumer Electronics Show. Gadgets that show us what we hope we can do long before we can actually do it. That's the next time on The Next Billion Gadgets. This episode of The Next Billion Gadgets was written and presented by Sally Dominguez and Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Alex Mitchell and sound production Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search The Next Billion Seconds on Apple Podcasts. This is Sally Dominguez and Mark Pesci thanking you for listening. <laughs>